0: Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> I appreciate each of you being here. Um, Tanner mentioned at the beginning of the service just how bizarre, <laughs> bizarre it seems our world is now. Um <clears throat> and I think that there's just a sense of Um, oppression on us. Um, Maybe not on some who don't know where they're at or what's going on. Um, But I think that if you aren't um, just under, it seems, a cloud, a a burden, um, a heaviness, there's probably something wrong with you. (laughs) So in other words, if you're not you know, a dark individual like I am, there's something wrong with you. Um, I'm exaggerating, but what in the world do we do if we don't have an anchor, a focus today on God who is going nowhere, knew about this 10,000 years ago, is caught off guard by absolutely nothing and promised, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will carry you like a father does his son. Some benefit, I think, can come from all of this. It's at least an opportunity. Whether it will result in this, I don't know. But it's an opportunity for people to recognize that all the things of this earth are so trivial and temporary and maybe some will turn their eyes to god that he is the only secure he's the only security we have so looking at the passage of scripture that we've been focusing on for this Four Sundays of Advent, found in Isaiah the <coughs> seventh chapter <coughs> and here 's how bizarre things are i 've been preaching out of the ninth chapter for this was the third Sunday, and it 's not the seventh chapter it 's the ninth, but it is the sixth and seventh verse, so i 'm not completely out of it <coughs> We'll read the passage again and then pick up where we ended last week. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have con- increased its joy they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That's just referring back to a victory over the Midianites several centuries earlier um, when they were heavily under the yoke on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Looking today, his name shall be called. Four different names, more recent versions translate this as four not as five as some of the older translations have it. They'll separate wonderful and counselor count that as two. It makes better sense that uh, there's four descriptions here and technically these aren't names in the sense of calling him that but they are descriptive terms for the character, the nature of the Messiah. This is a reminder, this is 700 plus years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah is one of the major um, messianic prophets of the Old Testament. Probably has the most and the clearest things to say about the coming of the Messiah. One of the things, I, I hope I'm not going to get off in the brush and find myself unable to get back onto the road. But thinking about this, plus the songs we just sang, the carols, you, we are faced with, and the entire message is, as a bedrock foundation, is the Trinity. Now, I can't understand the Trinity. There's a term that's used for the doctrine of the Trinity. It is supra, not super, but supra-rational. Supra-reasonable means it's beyond our ability to comprehend. It doesn't say a thing about its truth, whether it's true or not. The Bible can't be any plainer. that it speaks of one God eternally existent in three persons. Now the only way, we can't really grasp that as a concept, but we can describe how the three persons of the Trinity function together. Again, there's one God. But for a God to be loved, there must be an equal object to love. Thus you have not only the Father, but the Son whom He loves. The love and the communication of that love between the two introduces to us to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit. Um, the Scripture uses a word proceed this Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and proceeds from the Son thus the third person of the Trinity how they how the three persons work together as it were in such things as creation such things of course mainly as the plan of salvation are ways we can understand So very briefly, if we, you don't need to turn to this, but Genesis 1, right at the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God brooded or hovered over the waters. And God said, All three persons are in those verses God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, an agent of God's creative power. And then the moment that the Father said, let there be light. What is that? That's the Word. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is not only the eternal Word, meaning He's the very expression of the heart of the Father. The Scripture says that the thoughts of God's heart, written down, spoken, are kept forever. Hebrew says Jesus is the very picture, the very express image of the Father. And and I don't want to get off too far here, but Jesus made a statement about us. He said, speaking on a different subject, but it still touches here, what proceeds out of your mouth is what? The overflow of your heart. Nothing, then, that is in here can be kept hidden. It is revealed through here. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And the Father's thoughts of His heart are expressed in His Word, which is Christ. Christ is the living Word. He is the image of the Father, who came here so that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I am the exact image of the Father. Now, that's I can't go too much further into that. Creation is clearly reflective of the three persons of the Trinity. The plan of salvation, I think it's a little easier to understand how the three persons of the Trinity work together in the plan of salvation. The Father conceived the plan of salvation. It was to send His Son to be clothed in human flesh, thereby being able to identify with us. And when dying in our place and on our behalf for our sins, it is a real atonement because He took on himself the nature and the tent of those who need redeeming. Those who need redeeming cannot redeem themselves. Someone greater, higher, and untainted with the sin that causes our need of redemption has to die and redeem us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, was given on the day of Pentecost, and he said the reason is because I returned to my Father. And the Holy Spirit's job is to keep Jesus Christ in front of this world. His job is to convince the world, the whole world, of sin, righteousness, judgment. Jesus said, of sin because they don't believe me. Second, of righteousness, my example, righteous example because I returned to the Father. We can't see Jesus anymore like they could when He walked the earth. And then finally, He, the Holy Spirit, will remind us of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The devil, our foe, is defeated. Therefore, get on the winning side. (laughs) Finally, in the very issue of our own, each person's, own salvation there is the there are these actions by the three persons of the trinity the holy spirit let's look at it this way the father is the great judge of all the earth the holy spirit is the prosecuting attorney he's the da jesus jesus is the public defender the Holy Spirit reads the charges against me all the time. <laughs> we liken that. We'll, we'll use that as a, the term is my conscience. That's the Holy Spirit continually pressing charges against me. You did this. You said that. You hated this person. You whatever it was. You have broken God and his law. You have broken God's commandments. And so he is a 24 hour day prosecuting attorney. And he never comes up with bogus charges. They're real. The aim of the Holy Spirit is to so convict me that there will be a day as it were when I am spiritually in my heart and mind brought in before the great judge who's seated at the judgment bar to judge me. The Holy Spirit reads the charges to me and the Father and the Father as judge basically can ask me how I plead. Now this is a case where there are no Philadelphia lawyers lurking around to help you out. There are no plea deals. We're guilty. The judge already knows it. The Holy Spirit presses the charges on us. And if we will let that work in our hearts take place, we will stand there and say, I too have to acknowledge, I'm guilty. Now where's Jesus at in all this? Jesus steps forward as my defense attorney. He's the public defender. I've got no money to hire an attorney. But Jesus steps forward representing me. I know what it's like to walk on this earth in flesh. I did, I died for him or her as well as everyone else. And here's the critical thing to understand. Jesus never gets anybody off. Nobody is in the proper sense acquitted. Found, well, you didn't do it after all. That doesn't happen. We're as guilty as sin and we are under in God's kingdom. You break God's command, it's capital offense. We're severed from God, which means severed from the source of life. We die, period. It's the ancient judgment he pronounced to Adam and Eve. In the day you eat thereof, the day you disobey me, you'll die. Deuteronomy, the soul that sins will die. But Jesus steps forward, does not say, you know, she's a really nice person if you really get to know her. He's a good guy when you really look at it. I mean, he shovels the snow for the widow next door. And he, yeah, he's made some bad choices. There's none of that. Jesus steps forward and says to the judge, He's as guilty as sin. He hasn't got a leg to stand on. So I'm not here, Jesus says, to plead for His goodness. I am holding forth my wounded hands and showing that in His place, I died and I'm perfect. It is my merit that I am pleading. My sacrifice was sufficient to forgive him or her if and only if they plead guilty. There's no diminished capacity. There's no, well, let's get get a psychological evaluation. No, there's none of that. I plead guilty. Jesus steps forward and says, He's guilty. But I paid the penalty for him because he trusts in me and I lived a perfect life as the Son of God, died in his or her place. They now cast their hopes on me and their trust in me for my sake, Your Honor forgive them for Jesus sake not because we're nice guys for Jesus sake and for our repentance sake that we have said I turn from it the judge then declares me forgiven pardoned and then here's what the judge does he commissions the Holy Spirit. Book of Romans is clear on this. To tell me the charged accused individual. The charges are dropped. You are forgiven. Your record is clear. You are pardoned from the penalty which is hell and then he he doesn't say that he doesn't say you're free to go he does say you're free to go but you're free to go do what live your life for the one who just got you forgiven and died for you you are permanently eternally obligated to the one who took your sins upon himself and provided your forgiveness your redemption again i can't really understand a lot of the concept of how there's one god eternally existent in three persons but the bible describes for us and i think you and i can get a hold of that as to how the three persons work together in creation and in redemption. In light of that, then we have this description of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the one who identified with us by taking human nature and human flesh on us, being born into this world in a stable but never for a second wasn't God. Now, maybe we'll get to two of these names, but the first one, this Jesus who identified with us and who came as the Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean, by the way? It simply means anointed or appoint, appointed or chosen one. Again, I don't want to take too much time on this. But the Father, wanting to save us, appointed a Savior, a mediator. Someone who could mediate between God and man. He sent his Son, who is God, to come and be man. Jesus, therefore, is the only adequate mediator. He knows me and can plead my case to the Father. He is God he can confront me with my sins and my need of a Savior. No one else could do that. Jesus is the unique only individual that could do that. And so Messiah is the chosen one. God the Father says, I've sent Him to be my representative to you and He will represent you to me. For us then, and I think hopefully none of you do this but the world that says well you know Jesus was there are other ways to heaven there are other ways to God Um, Jesus was a wonderful prophet great teacher what an example he was you know something when we say that but we leave silent or deny that he was the everlasting God Every comment we would make about how great he was and how, what a wonderful teacher he was and how he impacted history, the truth of the matter is minus acknowledging he's the everlasting God, clothed in human flesh. Everything we think is kind and complimentary is in fact pure blasphemy. It is the most wicked thing I can say. To say he's a great teacher. Wonderful example. But deny that he was God. What I'm really doing is I am shaking my fist in the face of the Father who said, I choose him to come into this world and represent me. Well, no thank you. Messiah is the chosen one. And he's called Wonderful Counselor. What do those words mean? Wonderful counselor. The word, both words are important. Wonderful is to distinguish, to set apart. It is, it means there's no one like this one. No one like this one. He's wonderful. What further then? It means. Two, by the way, this word wonderful is never ever applied in all of Scripture to a human. It's only applied to God. In the other places where it's used, it's only applied to God because it is a perfect description of God. There's no one like Him. There is no other. Everything pertaining to God And everything pertaining to Christ on earth is wonderful. Another term sometimes used is miraculous. Wonderful counselor. Everything about Jesus is wonderful. His birth, His life, His acts, His death, His triumphant resurrection, His ever living to make intercession for us. Is wonderful. He is wonderful counselor. Counselor means one of honorable status. Speaking of people, it's someone filled with wisdom like a Daniel who counseled Nebuchadnezzar and Darius the successor, and Cyrus, the different kings of the Medes and the Persians. Daniel was a counselor to them. He was filled with wisdom. And the inference is even those pagan kings understood. He speaks for God. Well, Jesus is a divine counselor. He speaks for the Father. When he speaks, it's the word of God. And also, The word counselor has the aspect of attorney. Jesus is my defender. Now again, he never defends sin. He doesn't line up and say, well, let's let him off the hook. But the scripture says Jesus always lives forever to make intercession for us. He represents us. In the presence of the Father, because He was like us. Now, not that the Father, somehow God the Father doesn't know what it's like to be a human. He made us. But in a unique way, Jesus is qualified to be a counselor. Not only a counselor in the sense of an attorney, but in the sense of guiding me advising me, giving me wisdom, leading my life. Who's better suited to counsel me through the dark places of life, the difficulties that we may encounter, the surprise to us, things that overwhelm us, the deep wounds that can be inflicted on us. Who better than Jesus who walked in our place who lived here and when we think of it it we could you you can exhaust the language and you can't exhaust the concept Jesus Christ it says the worlds were made by him and there's nothing made that was not made by him yet he was homeless. He lived off of charity. The charity of friends. That's what he lived off of. He, hadn't, he said, I don't have a place to lay my head. He's God. <laughs> Yet he bankrupted himself. He emptied himself to come here and be homeless. No place to lay his head. And there is a little passage in John 1. He made the world. Yet it says when he came into the world, the world knew him not. And it means they didn't acknowledge him. It doesn't mean they were going, well, wow, who's this? It said they didn't acknowledge him. Then the next line says, he came to his own, and his own received him not. There's an interesting Uh, kind of detail that comes into focus. There's the wide we could put it this way we could say I came to Gillette I came into Gillette and Gillette was made by me (laughs) Jesus Mm -hmm. said I made the world but no one acknowledged me but it gets worse when it says he came to an o- his own, the word there really means to his own house. So you could say, Well, I came into Gillette, no one recognized me, but I could still have in my heart the hope that, Well, when I turn onto my street and into my driveway and go to my front door, they'll love me, they'll acknowledge me. Jesus said, I came to my own front door of my own home. And they wouldn't receive me. Jesus knows trouble. He knows heartache. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's why He's able to guide me through the same kinds of things and give me the strength to endure them. And it's also why he is a faithful high priest. Priests were, even in pagan cultures, where there's no sense of the true God. There's always the sense of some foggy being somewhere that is greater than us. And literally, if it's nothing but a tree stump that the tribe falls down in front of and to What does that culture do? It selects somebody from the village or the tribe to be the keeper of that tree stump. And they make sure that there's a boundary around it. You don't walk on it because it's, it's holy. It's dedicated to whatever God they have a concept of. And as the priest they're supposed to pray and give gifts and leave trinkets in front of that tree stump so that the God that tree stump represents will have favor on the villagers. Okay? Where'd they get that? That concept didn't precede God. It's a perversion and a darkening of what God taught. I'm going to send my son into your world and clothe him with your flesh. And he got hungry. He was sick. Had to have been times when he was sick. He looked for a place to sleep. He, though he was God, it mattered to him what people treated him. Hebrew says he counted as nothing or he didn't pay attention to the shame but endured it so that he could have joy down the road as he redeemed us. It doesn't mean then that Jesus was immune to shame. He felt it. But he disregarded it and said there's a greater greater purpose out here. There's nothing that we come into that Jesus hasn't already experienced. Nothing. Therefore, he can go to the Father and plead our case. Forgive them. Have mercy. They are flawed. (laughs) I've lived among them. I've felt the same things they've felt. I can therefore, as a high priest, represent them. I can come on their behalf and plead for them. That's what he does. He ever lives above to make intercession for us. Wonderful counselor. When Jesus gives us wise direction, probably ought to take it. He knows. One more. The second term, second name, mighty God. Mighty God. It means omnipotence, it means all powerful. And the word here, this is another word, the word for God, L which is never used in this sense, but for God. The Messiah is God. This is God who walked among us. It means He's omnipotent. There's absolutely nothing too hard for Him. There is nothing that He cannot do. There is... Nothing that he didn't do. The miracles Jesus performed, stilling the storms, raising the dead. I have long ago lost count of the number of times I've had funerals. I've stood at the graveside and done the graveside ritual. And we say we commit the body of our beloved father, son, whoever, waiting for the resurrection, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Then we pray and we some linger and weep, but we eventually drift away and the grave employees, cemetery employees, lower the casket, cover it up. That's what we know. There were a number of those scenes in the New Testament where the person in the casket walked back home with everybody else. That tends to stick in your memory. And that was rather commonplace. Mighty God, I have a Savior who knows what I go through And He's that mighty? He can get me out of a jam. He knows how to guide me between the rocks and our poor leaky ships. He knows how to chart a course to keep us safe. His whole goal, bring me safe to the harbor of heaven. He can do it. He can give me strength when I don't have any. He's God. And to consider Jesus, before I mention this, anything less than God is pure wickedness. He's God. What a privilege that we have a, a savior, a priest, a brother, he calls himself. He calls himself our brother. We face a foe that is greater than us. Have you ever, maybe back when we were kids, you can remember a schoolyard or playground bully, And you had an older brother who would come to your rescue. Spiritually, what do I do when the wrath of the enemy is directed toward me? I'm under severe temptation. It seems like the skies are dark and I don't know where to go. And my heart is heavy and it feels like God's gone, which He isn't. Well, what do I do? There are a lot of people that try to teach us today that we we bind Satan and we bark orders to Satan. He's never taken a single order from anybody that's human. What do I do? Go get my big brother. David said, I always put the Lord in front of me as a shield. So that whenever the devil comes to me, he's got to run into Jesus first. That doesn't go well for him. That's what it means to trust in him, to hide in him, to find refuge in him. He's the mighty God, mighty to save. No one can deliver out of his hand. we have a child born unto us as a child who's mighty God and wonderful counselor. I want us to bow our heads. The proper thing I believe for all of us always is to look with awe, reverence, Gratitude, deep humility at our Savior, who is mighty God, wonderful counselor. While Tanner prays prayer of dismissal, don't listen to him. Let's pray our own prayer and tell Jesus how grateful we are for who he really is and what we have then available spiritually at our side.